0: Hi, Erin. Hi, Ashley. How are you holding up?
1: I'm okay. Thanks for asking. I'm still social distancing, of course. And like a lot of people, I'm just spending a ton of time at home and walking around my own neighborhood.
0: How are you holding up? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. I'm also relying on walks around my neighborhood and my daily yoga practice to keep me sane. Well, speaking of flexibility,
1: I'm still thinking about our conversation last episode with Rick Skidmore. It's pretty incredible to think about how some organizations are displaying such agility right now.
0: Exactly. That was so powerful. And I was particularly struck by how a focus on culture was central to Timberlane's story. Here at NACD, we've heard from many of our director members that they are especially concerned with issues of people and culture as they help their companies navigate the COVID-19 crisis. I know that's especially true on the board of Eileen Fisher, where I serve and I chair the People and Culture Committee. So, given all this feedback, we decided to reach out to Johnny Taylor, the CEO for the Society for Human Resource Management. Johnny is no stranger to the podcast. He's been on before discussing the future of the workforce, and we felt he was a natural choice to explore questions of leadership in this environment. I'm Aaron Essenmacher. And I'm Ashley Marchand Orme. And this is Future Fluency, a podcast by the National Association of Corporate Directors where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impacts on business.
1: And this episode, will continue our exploration into leadership in times of
0: crisis. Let's dive in. Johnny, thank you so much for making time for this today. I know how incredibly busy you must be right now.
2: It's crazy, but I'm glad to do it. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's great to talk to you again and to have you back on the podcast. Given everything that the business community is facing with the COVID-19 crisis and the fallout, we wanted to take the next several episodes of the podcast to talk with leaders who understand what it means to lead through uncertainty. So, Johnny, you have multiple perspectives that you're bringing to this conversation. You understand what it means to lead as a CEO running your own organization. But given the work that Sherm is doing, you also have a powerful lens on how Business leaders across sectors are grappling with some of these issues, especially as they relate to people, culture, and the workforce. And we're going to dive into all of those in equal measure. So, welcome. Thank you. This may seem like a strange place to start since we're all bombarded with so much heavy news about COVID 19 and the personal toll, economic fallout. But we've also been talking a lot about people and how not only it's impacting people, but how people are coming together, how they're working together in different ways. And as I think about the work you do and, and thinking about that element from a culture standpoint, from a workplace standpoint, you know, what are you seeing there? Is there a way that you think this might actually be a catalyst for for positive change as we think about the workplace and how people work together and relate to each other moving forward?
2: Before COVID, you were just hey. running. And now you're stopping to say, how are you doing? And you actually are pausing to wait for the person to respond as opposed to it just being perfunctory and kind of what you're supposed to ask. Right. I think we're seeing people uh, begin to appreciate the value of life and how fragile is it, fragile it is. I know that from the employer side, we're also fully appreciating the why people matter. I've talked to CEOs who specifically said, in fact, it was an interesting comment the other day by a CEO, big two, Fortune 250 company who said, over the last eight weeks, I've had more conversations, in-depth strategic conversations with my CHRO than I had the prior eight years. And it was really interesting that now CEOs are saying this is as much a, a public health epidemiological issue as it is a people issue, how it's affecting my employees and therefore how they affect my business has become very clear to me. CEOs have for a long time said, you know, our most important asset is our people, but we don't act like it a lot. As a CEO, I can tell you, you get so caught up in hitting your numbers. And to the extent you're focused on people, you're focused on customers because those are the people who have really mattered to you. And now we understand that no, our internal people, our our employees really matter. So a focus, a renewed focus from the C-suite, on why people matter and why it's so important to be concerned about your employees and and their, their lives outside of just work, doing for you what you pay them to do. But we're also seeing it amongst employees uh, from a contemporary standpoint. When someone stops and asks you at the, how are you doing? They actually wanna know, how are you doing? And that's not something we've seen before. So I can't wait to see How this translates when we get back to traditional work as we knew it, people going back into offices, I'm hoping that there's a bleed over effect and that we actually are going to see a shift in culture and that people are going to be kinder to people. And that's not just to be a serpy term like, you know, you should be nice to people. I mean, legitimately, are you listening and seeing your fellow human beings?
0: That's well said and actually a great segue to the next topic I wanted to touch on, which is the balance that we're seeing companies grappling with in terms of supporting their employees and the real economic fallout from the crisis. Certainly something that I'm focused on both here in my role as a leader at NACD, but also on the board of Eileen Fisher, where I serve. I know this is something that other board members, CEOs, other business leaders are really struggling with right now. How do you see that balance between taking care of your workforce and continuing to foster a high-performance, positive culture with managing the very real economic fallout that we're seeing? I know there are multiple facets to this issue, so let's start first with talking about benefits and perks. In the conversations you're having with CEOs and CHROs, other leaders, how are they thinking about those pieces as a way of evaluating the balance between the human element and the economic impacts?
2: So great question. So perks, and when we think about benefits, I'm going to separate for purposes of this answer, traditional benefits, health and welfare benefits, and now talk about perks and things like 401k matches. Well, what we've heard, of course, is that 401k matches have always been discretionary. And so, you know, you have a plan that a design that says you will match up to x percentage, and some are even doing dollar for dollar. Well, going forward, CEOs are questioning whether or not they can do that. They don't, they're not suggesting eliminating them, but saying, let's take a hiatus from, because that's a discretionary spend, to be honest. And so 401k matches are on the table. We've also heard bonus discussions. That's, believe it or not, a big discussion is this the time, when is the time to suggest to employees that essentially 2020 is gone? So there's no point in working this hard. And it's a really interesting conversation here where they're saying, if we tell employees right now, there's no chance that we're gonna be able to make a decent year out of this and therefore bonuses are not going to occur, do we run the risk of, taking the, the energy, the, 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 the fight out of our employees. And so there are, we've debated, do you just tell people up front, there's no chance in the world that we're going to have any bonuses. And, but, 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 but maybe, uh, if you do it and, and I'm not answering this well, because I'm a little concerned about how my answer will be perceived. Everything's on the table. Everything, uh, with the exception of basic health and uh, and medical benefits, are really on the table. I mean, we're torn. I'm I'm in that role right now. I have 500 plus employees across the globe working at Sherm, 200 million dollar business, and you know I want to make sure that my employees are absolutely not at home by themselves in isolation, worried about their jobs. By the same token if I I owe it to the employees to ask the question, are there people who are currently working with us doing things that aren't value add, because if I ultimately need to protect the entire enterprise for the majority of the people. Now, ideally you find a way, and I think we've done so in my business in particular, to keep everyone busy, even if it means realigning people's responsibilities. So you may not be able to do the job that you do the way you've done it, Or that that role may go away. But what we found a way to do is to ensure that every employee who has the right attitude, who wants to work, can continue to work in my shop. And that's what CEOs are doing. They're trying to say, how can we realign the resources, the human resources, to keep them fully employed while uh, protecting the business for the long term? We have seen a significant number of high-profile, I should say, CEOs and, I, and, and executive teams take pay cuts. And I think it's important because it really plays to empathy. Um, and, and and plays to suggest that i don 't think it's sincere it says that all of us have to share and have to feel some of this pain and so Marriott CEO uh, God bless him who was also at the same time fighting pancreatic cancer you want to talk about literally a double whammy during this period um, led by saying listen i 'm not going to take a, a salary my chairman's not and my executive team's going to take a pay cut and he needed to do that because employees employees, Employees, you're furloughing and in many instances outright laying off because many of the stores won't, many of their locations won't open again, um, even after COVID because this was just too much of a blow. He's saying, I too need to, you need to see me feel some of this. And so I think that's the significance of this is it says to employees that my leader is also prepared to sacrifice and to feel some of this. It is great leadership and a great example of how to get employees to rally behind a leader in tough, tough times.
0: I know you've looked into the CARES Act as part of the work that you're doing there at Sherm. Can you talk about what you're seeing there and how it may be a mitigating force when it comes to some of these issues?
2: Yeah, it's part of the $2 trillion stimulus package. And the thing that is really it feels good is that the country has said that in addition to state unemployment benefits, which average about three hundred and eighty five dollars per week, that the federal government is going to put on top of that six hundred dollars, which means essentially a thousand dollars per week will be going to people who are impacted, laid off, furloughed as a result of covid-19. That will go a long way toward helping people survive during this period now if it goes on if we have covid this time next year at the same rate that we do now i don't think there's anything i mean we're we're really going to have a problem then but the the federal legislation it has gone a long way toward making companies feel more comfortable that their people even if they have to have a temporary layoff or a furlough that their people will be okay and then they can bring them back on so companies are going to be able to say okay i'm going to have to furlough you now There is $1,000 a week or so out there that you'll be receiving from the federal government. And then when we are up and running again, we can bring you back on. If we do that, I think we're going to be in a good spot. We've also paid medical leave. There was the first wave of legislation that required most employers, uh, 500 employees or more, to provide paid medical leave for people who are impacted by COVID. So a number of provisions have been put in place that should help people for the next 90 to 120 days. And the idea is that that's just to bridge us to the other side of this crisis.
0: Let's talk about another facet of this core question of how you think about balancing the culture and the economics. You know, employees are under a lot of stress right now, both personally and professionally. Sometimes we're asking them to do extra work, to take on different roles than maybe they've had in the past. And in some ways, it's really a time when you want to reinforce the culture and reassure employees. How are you seeing CEOs and other leaders message around some of these trade-offs? How are they reinforcing the kind of culture that they want to promote and develop in their organizations, even as the environment is incredibly uncertain? What are you seeing there?
2: You know, it's an interesting question because I think one of the unintended consequences, and I think positively so over the long run, is COVID-19 and our response to it has forced a number of CEOs to revisit what their culture is. The problem is we all sort of had cultures that we aspired to, aspirational cultural statements. They weren't necessarily reflective of how we do business and what it means to work in an operation. Someone asked me, what's the definition of culture? It means how things really get done around here. And so too often it was, we go into a room and we come out with a culture statement and it sounds really good and it's aspirational, but the overwhelming majority of our employees, if we if really pushed, would say, eh, that's not necessarily the way we work. It may be the way they want it to work. What COVID-19 has forced us to do is to really ask ourselves, do those words that we've said articulate our culture really match our culture? What do I mean by that? So, for example, there are a number of organizations where the word resilience is a part of the culture statement. And so they're faring much better right now than organizations who never really spoke to that issue. That part of our culture, who we are, is that we take we tackle tough times and we we make tough choices and we get stuff done. If that wasn't a part of who you are, then surprisingly now, not surprisingly, I should say, you're struggling because your employees were never told that's what your culture was and and what was expected of them. If you've had a culture that was so Pollyannish, that was so perfect, that was always life is going to be great, then when you have been met, when this this curveball has been thrown your way, The organization can't respond to it because you've not used those muscles, if you will, those cultural muscles that are necessary to help you navigate this period.
1: And having a healthy culture really starts with having a good tone at the top, especially at the board level. We recently spoke with Janet Foudy, Executive Chair of the Board of Deloitte. She's a member of Deloitte's Global Board of Directors and the former Chair and CEO of Deloitte Consulting. Janet spoke about the importance of creating a culture of inclusion. Janet, is creating a culture of inclusion the board's responsibility? Boards are
3: really in an ideal position to advance the inclusion agenda for their organizations by both leading the way in their own board composition and diversity and inclusion practices, where a lot of the focus has been to date, as well as how they govern inclusive behaviors and management. But I think it's important to note that diversity and inclusion are inextricably linked, but really not one in the same. I believe the time has come to put equal weight on both diversity and inclusion. Creating an inclusive environment is really about successfully leveraging the diversity of thought and experiences being cultivated and making sure that all the voices are heard. So
1: what should boards start doing or maybe do differently to address inclusion?
3: There are really five practical and actionable ways that a board can take action. The first is to be clear about identifying the attributes that define being an inclusive leader and add those to the list of competencies when looking at your board's composition. Next, to elevate and listen to the voices in the room, soliciting dialogue from all members so everyone is equally empowered to not just be in the room, but be actively engaged. To welcome dissent, as leaders, we should want our people to hold each other accountable and create a healthy tension to ensure our collective ideas hold up to constructive critique. Integrating different insights, using the collective intelligence now gained through listening and allowing dissent to generate the best outcome. And last, but certainly not least, to measure progress. We all know that what gets measured gets managed. The same rigor used for other aspects of governance should be applied to the issue of inclusion as well. I'm all for thinking about and acting on inclusion in bold ways, and it truly starts with tone at the top in the boardroom.
1: Thanks, Janet. Aaron, let's jump back into your conversation to get a sense of how Johnny describes organizational culture in this COVID-19 environment.
2: I often say in our shop, that one of the things that marks the SHRM culture is that we are very adaptable and we operate decently in chaos. We don't wish for chaos, but we operate decently even when chaos is the state of affairs. And that was uncomfortable for a lot of people. In fact, I've had people leave our shop because they say, you know, I just don't like that. I need, I need more order. And, and guess what? Those are the people who would have never done well because we're drawing on that very cultural truth to help us navigate COVID. We are actually doing well, relatively speaking, because our culture was one that said you've got to be able to be adaptable, you've got to be agile, and you've got to sometimes operate well in a chaotic environment. And xenophobia, for example, the fear of the unknown, we have tackled those issues in our culture statement for years. And therefore, we are navigating this well, because our culture is built for this. And I think that's one of the I hope this is clear. It's one of the benefits that I hope will come out of this is CEOs are going to question, what is our culture? What should our culture be? And how can we hold people accountable? How can we recruit against that culture statement as opposed to just having it be something on the wall or in the handbook?
0: Well, and I love your point about we're all in this together. And I I wonder if there's some bigger lesson that we as leaders can take from this to foster, nurture, and keep that feeling going in our companies and our organizations and our communities once the crisis has passed?
2: Well, that's what the opportunity is for us. Everything that we are learning, again, the optimist in me says, even out of you know, bad situations and crises come some amazing learnings. If we can take, almost capture the, the esprit de corps, this sense of it's us against this thing called COVID, and somehow take some percentage of it, it won't always be, but some percentage of that, when we get back to our norm, whatever the new norm is, It's gonna really, it could have a galvanizing, really nice effect. You know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, if we can point out to people that, you know, how well you got along with that person who was different from you during COVID because you needed them, they needed you. Imagine if we can somehow find a way to continue those relationships post this COVID crisis. I think that's that's the that's where I'm optimistic. I th- I, I believe that that's we're going to really see a different world. One of the things that we talk a lot about is you know people who desired work life balance. We talk about that a lot, or work life integration. People who felt that we worked too hard, you know, just too many hours. One thing that COVID has forced us all to do is spend more time with your family. Um, you know, under these it's more than just work from home. It's live at home because most of these cities have essentially shut down everything but non-essential. So there are no movies and malls and places to get out and go. You're forced to spend time, if you're fortunate enough, by the way, to have family because I am concerned about people who are living in isolation and, and literally don't have anyone to interact with. But you're forced now to spend time with your family and your loved ones and you're not as... Is the hustle and bustle of rushing to the next thing is not is not our reality. So I think there's some some added benefit to making us collectively slow down.
0: That's great. All right. As I mentioned, we sourced a couple of questions through uh, social media and had a couple come through via Twitter and LinkedIn. And I want to turn to one of those now. What are you seeing from companies whose workers are considered essential, who have to remain operational? How are they keeping their workers both safe and motivated during this time?
2: Yeah, that's um, from our first responders to, frankly, retail operators. Uh, people, We forget that while these restaurants are still open, they're not allowing people to dine in, but you can go to restaurants and eat and we've got to protect those employees. They are hyper vigilant, if you will, about security. So, you know, everything from the appropriate PPE, this personal protective equipment, uh, to making sure that they have all of the sanitizers, hand sanitizers, the social distancing. I went to a restaurant to pick up my food because it's takeout only. And between me and the cash register, there were two long tables that essentially gave them the appropriate social distancing. Employers realize that if there is a chance, especially those who have the the good fortune of being able to remain open during this as opposed to shuttering their doors and losing money, that they've got to protect the employees who are working there. They are one bad incident away, one exposure away from being shut down, and so they're being they're doing it for two reasons. One, because it's the right thing to do to take care of their people, but they truly understand that if they don't do it, this could literally take them out of, uh, put them out of business, at least temporarily and potentially longer. If it became a negative, a tarnish, uh, if it tarnishes their reputation because someone was made sick while working at their environment and in, in their workplace.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how you see this impacting both the present and future state of the workplace. I'm going to start by weaving in one of the audience questions that we received via social media, and it's about overseeing a unionized workforce. What are you seeing on that front? Any special considerations that employers who have unionized employees are thinking about ways that they're needing to to pivot how they operate?
2: We have. And in fact, you've seen more of that globally. So I was on a call the other day with the International Employer Organization, IEO. So it's the Organization of Employers Globally. And uh, very interesting conversations around, you know, union contracts. Technically, companies are breaching them left and right right now. You know, in the past, you were told this was your job. This is where, you know, even the question of work work from home. There are a number of union contracts that have technically been breached by mandating that employees work from home because many of these contracts include provisions that say you show up at X place to do your work from this time to that time. And so, uh, but the unions uh, have been amazingly, uh, and I can only speak to the unions that I know of, the major, the ASMEs, the the, uh, AFL CIOs, et cetera. They have they have truly responded almost like corporate leaders and said right now is not the time for us to hold people specifically to the language because none of us could have contemplated uh, the covid-19 crisis. I'm thinking about the airlines, for example, their unions have have absolutely said, I get it. We can't guarantee minimum flying hours for uh, our our for the people who are covered under our union contract because no one would have anticipated it. And if you think about it, 911, 6 days after 911, we were playing major league baseball in New York again. It, 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 like we really got back. It was a big situation obviously, but we got back to quasi normal quickly. This is going on for months and the unions have all understood what that means. What I'm encouraging CEOs and CHROs and labor negotiators is go to the unions, go to them, you know, take the affirmative step of saying this is the situation we're in and we need you to partner with us right now. And every indication is that that's going well. They'd be tone deaf not to.
0: You touched on remote work just there and that's where I'd like to go next. Obviously, those of us who can have moved to a fully remote work model more by necessity than necessarily choice, but it's also generated a lot of conversation about if and how this might fundamentally shift the way we think about things like telework and the role of the physical workplace. What's your take there?
2: If there's anything that gives me pause, again, not up at night, but that gives me pause about the workplace, it is, um, it has a lot to do with what we're, this work from home, uh, this, this phenom that, that concerns me a little is this idea that we, we might believe that as a result we can, the answer is, well, going forward, this is proof that we don't need employees to come into a centralized workplace. That we everyone can work remotely. That we can reduce our footprint as organizations. That is our office space footprint, and and you know eliminate electric uh, uh, HVAC cost, and you know just the cost of maintaining an office, because we've now tested and proven that you can operate efficiently and effectively remotely. That concerns me a little bit because I don't think we have fully begun to appreciate the costs to um, to employ morale, to culture, uh, long and short term implications of not being able to establish a true esprit de corps amongst your employees, which is the essence of culture. And I just worry that we we might over rely on the fact that technology has allowed us to operate through this period, which is now in many instances as much as two months working remotely. And it may stretch out. I know the state of Virginia has just announced June tenth as its target date for reopening. And so those sorts of that that does give me a concern. I think we may over rely on the fact that we've had this 90 day test. And it proves that, guess what? We don't need people to show up to work in in the way that we did pre-COVID.
0: Johnny, you and I have talked a lot about the idea of talent management, how that's changing the future of talent management, certainly a topic we've covered in many different ways across past episodes of this podcast. How do you think about the impacts that this crisis will have on how we think about talent management moving forward.
2: Again, I, I, I got to tell you, I have never, ever, in the, and you and I have had these conversations, you're absolutely right, that over the last, oh, two or three years, there have been real conversations with CEOs and boards about the importance of talent and not just from, you know, a litigation avoidance uh, standpoint. You know, in the past, when we had in the early 90s, all of the class action litigation and that got the attention, it was more compliance related. It wasn't talent from a talent perspective. It was people and compliance and litigation avoidance. So two or three, maybe four years ago, as the labor market began to tighten, we saw serious conversations. Well, COVID has really highlighted for employers and and the boards and CEOs particularly, why their people matter. And that having a plan in place to deal with these crises Having a true articulation that of of culture that speaks to what the culture is, so that when these things happen, we have more predictability about how the organization will react and how the people will react. These are now strategic level discussions that I think are going to be if if we saw it, it on a one to ten scale, if there were seven level seven conversations occurring. Post COVID, they're going to be level ten conversations. Even business continuity plans. In the past, they were focused on: Do we have? Can technology step up? Well, sure, but we didn't really think about in business continuity plans the people, uh, truly, truly the people, the human resources, the talent perspective. You know, am I being poached right now? With employers sitting at home, employees sitting at home all day, um, your employees who would otherwise be at work now can be interviewing. And are my best talent being poached right now by companies that say, when I get back in this game, I want to go after Johnny because Johnny's a talent we've always wanted. My business is more stable. I make toilet paper. So I've made money during this period of time. I make Purell. You know, all businesses aren't laying off right now. (laughs) Many of them are really doing well as a result of this. The rebuilding effort, which will occur as we reopen America, is going to require the absolute best talent. So this is a time for us to pause, stop, and say, "Okay, when I look at who we have on board, do I have the best people? When we open again, are the uh, do I have the people who can move the fastest, who are the smartest, who are the hardest working, and who are the most aligned with our culture? If not, this is a time to, do, uh, to be very intentional in your talent acquisition strategy. If there are talented people out there that you want and need... Again, when this this whole thing gets past us, then this is a time to be very intentional about going after them. So I wouldn't just sit back and say, unemployment, we're laying off, we're laying off. I think this is an opportunity for us to hire as well and to look for the talent you may not have been able to snag just 12 weeks ago. And so all of these are realities that boards and CEOs are grappling with. We need an HR, a people strategy, a talent strategy in a way that we've never needed one before or fully appreciated it. We always needed it. We just didn't know that we needed it.
0: Great points. So I know in a lot of ways, we're still very much in it. We're still very much moving through the crisis. But as you take a step back, are there any early lessons learned that you see that we can take from this as business leaders to help be more prepared for the next crises, especially as we think about it from the perspective of talent, culture, or human resources?
2: So three things. One, you cannot underestimate the value of being clear about what your culture is and how you want all of your people how important it is for all of your people to live that culture, to be bought into it, uh, and for there to essentially be employer and employee alignment around culture. Critical. Number two, that as a part of one's business continuity plans and business interruption plans. We have to have a comprehensive people strategy. We, we just didn't think about it as intentionally as we should have. And as a result, they were caught flat-footed, uh, you know, saying you're going to have people work from home without, without having a technology system that would support it, without ensuring that all of your employees had Wi-Fi, et There were just, we didn't think through the, the real people impact of a crisis or a business interruption event. And then thirdly, it will be how do we deal with you know, the employees who show back up post-crisis and especially mental health. We are so focused right now, almost maniacally focused on people not getting the COVID-19 themselves or their family members that we have not really fully appreciated the toll that this taking on people, the isolation of work from home, mandatory work from home when The rest of the entire city is shut down. So it's not just work from home. It's stay at home, right? We haven't thought about uh, the impact on people who are stressed with the 24 hour news cycle and looking at a television screen that every minute flips and says one more person just died or one more kid just got sick and just the overall emotional and mental toll. So we're going to we i don't think that we have really put enough focus on the f- emotional and mental health of our employees and then the people who are literally more stressed about the financial impact. You know, you might, um, you know, keep your employees employed during this period of time, but people's spouses have lost their jobs. They're worried big time about their mortgages and their kids in college and et cetera. So the mental and emotional health realities of this all need more attention. And I think going forward, we're going to have a different level of sensitivity toward it.
1: It's always helpful to end a conversation like this looking toward the future.
0: Indeed. That's all for this episode. Join us next time for another conversation on leading through times of uncertainty. I can't wait. For guest bios, more resources, and a link to this episode's transcript, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno
1: Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song is composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.